I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. This episode of Futurecast is proudly sponsored by Salesforce Datarama. To learn more about how teams are using Datarama to grow their marketing, visit marketingmag.com.au slash futurecast or click the link in our episode notes. So I would like to introduce and welcome Professor Soheo Nayatullah. It's almost like two of my words are colliding, uh, finally, because of Futurecast, the world of uh, strategic foresight and strategic marketing. So welcome, Soheo. Very happy to have you with us. Great to be here, Sergio. Thank you so much for joining us today. I guess to get us started, Sahail, I would love to hear a little bit about your own personal trajectory and how you came to be the first UNESCO Chair in Future Studies. So Future Studies is a discipline, and I know there's many universities teaching it. Uh, my own, when I interviewed the head of Tam Kang University, Clement Chang, he talked about he had a 100-year vision to have future studies programs throughout the world, uh, teaching futures literacy, teaching methods and tools, teaching theories. And I, and I liked his long-term view, and I thought that was fantastic. So I've been a professor there for about 20 years. Now, the UNESCO part was there's UNESCO chair system around the world of different disciplines, and they invite people to hold chairs in particular disciplines. So when UNESCO called me, they said, we're setting this up, and would you like to be a possible chairholder? So you go through an application process. I think in terms of the relevant part here is when I did the application process, I said, how do I turn my own journey in futures thinking, future studies? So I said, well, phase one was basically planting seeds, getting organizations, institutions, countries to think long-term, to, to think wider and broader, deeper about the future. Phase two really became, well, let me start to work with particular organizations. So for 20 years with Australia Biosecurity, did a lot of work with Australia Federal Police, a lot of work with city councils, a lot of work with educational institutions. So they became projects I would go back and forth to back and back. And so that became nurturing trees. And phase three in the application was creating a forest of foresight. So forest of foresight, you know, you're not so concerned which plant takes off. You just want to have multiple foresight projects at planetary levels, regional levels, organizational levels, and of course, personal levels. So in terms of my role there, it's to create this forest of foresight and particularly in terms of focusing it, it's been with the Asia-Pacific Futures Network, working with futures throughout the Asia-Pacific region and having creating a platform for them to talk to each other, learn from each other, and seed projects for institutions and governments. As a true global citizen, you have experienced several different cultures, and uh, I would assume that this would have shaped your view of the future and how different cultures also view the future. In, in, in what ways has this shaped your own perspective? So I was born in Lahore, and we lived in Peshawar, and then from Peshawar we moved to Indiana in the U.S. in the 60s. Then we moved to Flushing, New York, and from there to Geneva, 
then to Pakistan for two years, and then to Malaysia. Then at 17, I moved to Hawaii. So in terms of what I learned from it was the difficult part was every country has a dominator culture and they exclude others. So they're like a core racism every country has, who's above, who's below. Uh, the second thing I learned that geopolitics or the nation state is defining hinders people's idealism. So even at 17, 18, I was very clear that the world I wanted didn't have racism as its root and didn't have the nation state as defining as its root. So I was always looking for something. If we are on a planet and we're humans being first, what would be a governance process or structure that brought out the best of us? And so this is really what I learned from every culture. And I lived in Hawaii 20 years and after Honolulu came to Australia. So I think those would be some of the key ideas that I learned from growing up everywhere. This is interesting because in marketing, we usually tend to focus on the differences. And what you're saying is that there are many more similarities between cultures. I mean, I have to say, because I run these visioning workshops everywhere, whether at high schools, uh, large corporations, international organizations, countries, and really maybe it's the way I'm running them, but four or five things do come up. Almost everyone wants a greener planet. Very few people I've met love pollution. People want green cities. And almost everyone I've met likes seamlessness. They don't like to spend days working with bureaucracies to get stuff done. They want ease of use. And the third thing almost everyone I met they really want more equity. They don't want where you're born to decide what you get on this planet. And then there's a softer side. Almost every workshop people talk, whether it's spiritual or non-material, there's some deeper part of us. Almost every group says, yes, the best organizations are purpose-based. So there's something around when you ask people not about their tribe, what they don't like, but in an ideal situation, what do you see? So we do this inner visioning where we took people to 2030 or 2040 and people see technology, but it's transparent. It's everywhere, but you can't really see it. They always see family and community loved ones. They always see nature everywhere, more green. Even in cities, they see cities, but there's organic farms everywhere, green buildings. So when you ask people what they really want, that's what they talk about. And then I've always noticed, I think many of us notice, well, here's what we want. Why is there such a big disconnect with the world we have now? Mm, there does seem to be a sort of space between what many of us envision for the future and what actions are actually being taken to create that future in a lot of ways. Yeah, in this way, the image leads reality. So it was this foundational work in the 70s by Oliver Markley and colleagues and they noticed that, in fact, the image of the future leads reality, and you almost have to wait sometimes 30, 40, 50 years for reality to catch up. So we have an image of a better world, and then we have the contradictions between a greener world and pollution today, more gender equity and kind of the inequity we have today, more flow of goods and peoples and kind of the restrictions we have today. So he says there's a process where reality catches up. So our role in futures is to stay focused on the vision. Here's a better world. Here's a possible world. That doesn't mean we ignore the contradictions and geopolitics and tough reality, but we're very clear, here's where we wish to go. And organizations really want that focus because if we use the past, that's 
often not the best way to do strategy in times of dramatic change. If I'm in conflict with someone, if I'm conflict with you, then we, if we go back to all the times we were in conflict before, that reinforces the conflict. The future's question is, okay, where do you two want to be? And I remember when I was a uh, young researcher at the Hawaii, Hawaii Judiciary in the 80s, and we were starting to do futures work there. And I remember I got into some argument with one of the senior judges. And so I stomped into the court administrator's office. I said, I'm very angry at that judge. And I want you to take care of it. And he listened to me. And then he said, okay, great. Take a week. Tell me what you really want. And I was perplexed because I had no idea what I wanted. So I came back to him in a week. And I said, aha, I understand what you were saying. Do I want to win this battle with this judge? Or is it more important, the foresight, innovation work we're doing on helping transform the justice system to meet the changing needs of citizens? So he asked me, in a, it was a teachable moment where he had me focus on, do I want to stay in the conflict or do I want to stay in the solution? So our work in future studies has always been, yes, there's conflict. Let's move to solution space. At the moment, I think as well with everything that's happening in the world, this this question of the future and, and the kinds of lessons that you're speaking about are so very valid. And so I'd like to ask you about in an article that you recently co-authored with Dr. Peter Black, you sort of reject the idea of COVID-19 as a black swan event. And I wanted to ask you why why you reject that label and what signs or information were we failing to see? Dr. Peter Black worked with FAO many years, worked with Department of Agriculture in Canberra many years. And with him and colleagues, I think since 2003, for about 10 years, I ran foresight workshops, sometimes three-day courses, sometimes one-day events. And clearly in almost every event, it was always pandemic on the way. I can't imagine any of those workshops, someone not saying that. And we just say, well, what are the causes? And Peter Black says very clearly, uh, once urbanization enters wildlife areas, as well as our current industrial farming of protein, that leads to the possibility of increasing zoonotic diseases. Climate change as well exacerbates that. So they were very clear. Our current model of economy creates the likelihood of more pandemics. And there's a whole range of reports globally for the last 15, 20 years saying this is a likely event. Uh, report after report to government after government has suggested this. So why on earth didn't we have appropriate action to counter the symptoms and the causes of what's already been identified as emerging risks? So there's different purposes or reasons, you might say. Mm. Uh, Reason one is I'm too busy in the present, right? Mm -hmm. Reason two, uh, there's no votes in prevention of a possible event. So political leaders have a hard time having the will to do that. I remember, I think it was 10 years ago, the president of EU said, we know what the right thing to do, talking about climate change, but we also know we can't get elected on it. So there's too busy, there's the election possibility or the lack, you may not get reelected on this platform. Third, it's taking the possibility and embedding 
anticipatory systems that we can act on. We look at Taiwan. I was visiting during SARS there. So when they saw the early indicators, they acted straight away. They said, aha, this reminds us of something. They had set up a pandemic early response group. So they knew it, they watched it, and they were ready. So you, we could see easily they had a worldview that this is possible, and they had built in anticipatory public health systems, governance systems to react and respond appropriately. So this is now what happens at the national level. The great thing about this virus, which is also a horrible thing about this virus, it tells you what was invisible. It makes it visible. So we're seeing how it, systems that are inequitable, it attacks. It attacks the vulnerable. We saw that in Singapore, which has amazing futures capabilities and was one of the early success stories. And they have all the reasons why. Science-based policy, not superstition. Early, decisive action. But they had a worldview blindness. The worldview blindness was the migrant dormitories. There's a hierarchy in most countries. In that country, migrant workers, I don't think, are seen at the same level as locals. And thus, that area was not protected. And of course, COVID-19 travels, well, it doesn't travel, people travel, and that goes to where there's no safety measures there. For the first time ever, Salesforce Datarama has conducted a research study in seven countries across Asia and ANZ. Learn about the top challenges marketers face and how they are utilizing data to drive growth in our survey of over 1,000 top marketing leaders. Download it now from marketingmag.com.au slash futurecast, or you can find a link in our episode notes. It's interesting because you do the same work in the corporate sphere as well. And uh, even though there, there are no clear signs that big pharma were already being working towards a possible pandemic or companies like Amazon already investing in their supply chain, considering that something like what's happening right now would be happening, th there wasn't so much of a paralysis. Do you see it in this way? Is, 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 is it different to act on, on the future when you're on the public side of things as opposed to the private side of things? Well, private can be quicker, but the markets are tough, right? Mm -hmm. I know, I remember it was one cola company I worked with, I think seven, eight years ago, and they asked us to produce a report on the future of cola. And they had different groups produce the report, and our conclusion was get out of it, you'll be known as a tobacco merchants. There's very little health outcomes from drinking this. So we had already seen the early indicators of the dramatic wellness revolution we've seen the last seven, 10 years. So I remember as they started to shift towards being more of a wellness company, the markets go against you. So you really have to have, no, we're going to stay with the vision. We're going to stay with the long term. And as that CEO said, you can't be a slave to them. You can shape the markets for the better. So at the corporate level, it's shaping the market, saying, wait, there's not just prosperity, there's purpose, there's planet, there's people. So for me, it's developing indicators for all four. And most groups actually want prosperity, purpose, planet, people. So those become the quadruple bottom line instead of the single bottom line. Now, that may be our accounting measure and maybe the vision of the future, but our current systems, how we organize food production, how we organize decision-making, actually don't support that. 
So we may be against pollution, but if one country is polluting, how do I in the neighboring country, if I get the downstream effects, how do I stop that? One, we don't have international agreements on one of these issues. And two, we don't have enforcement agreements to make sure you've done this or you can't do this. And so large international organizations work at conferences, working in integrated agreements, but they don't have enforcement. That enforcement creates the problem. We don't have that type of governance structure on the planet. So thus the worst case scenario remains. We just did this, you were part of that, Sergio, this fantastic beginning work with the UNSCAP. And the outlier scenario was very much a cascading of crisis for the next 20 years. Pandemic after pandemic, climate change after climate change. It was not a rosy scenario because they understood that that's the one we have to watch out for. We don't have the governance structures and we've not made the consciousness interchange to say, okay, I'm going to be led by my preferred future as opposed to being led by people I'm afraid of. Mm-hmm. And w- what's interesting also from this recent work that, that we've done with the uh, UNSCAP was when uh, I saw on a chart the evolution of every single of the sustainable development goals between 2000 and 2018, that was the data. And from all of those 17 SDGs, SDG number 12, responsible consumption and production, is the one that actually regressed the most. It hasn't quite evolved. And since you mentioned markets, let's talk about marketing, because marketing is possibly the longest, largest, and best-funded social experiment we have ever ever experienced and still do. And consumerism is a, is a really big part of that. With, with that said, and considering the four scenarios that you have created with Dr. Peter Black, what, what relationship do you see between consumerism and each of those scenarios? And if you could just explain a little bit what each of those four scenarios are, it would be quite helpful for everyone listening to this. So in March, we met uh, virtually, and I'm wondering if we met physically, I'm not sure, face-to-face, and we looked at all the literature out there. And very clearly, scenario one was zombie apocalypse, and the CDC in the U.S. actually had that already. So zombie apocalypse was a future driven by fear. The zombies are others out to get us. So the next 10 years, we see zombies everywhere. Of course, zombies is analogy. So who are the zombies? Every culture has their zombies. And so that's scenario one. Things get much worse, driven by fear. So the organizations I've worked with, among the things that have come out, if that's the case, we need a different strategy. And so one uh, school system, they said, we're going to focus on trust. So in marketing, if everyone is afraid, what is the thing we add value? What do we add? Well, we're going to ensure that we're going to say we're the trusted school. Your kids are, are safe with us. We'll protect you. Of course, learning will be the same as ever, whether it's virtual or physical, but this will be a trusted, safe space. Scenario two was the pause that leads to speed next year. So this year is a year of pause, connecting with family, connecting with friends, meditation, prayer, slowing down. Everything slows down, less movement, and we take this year as the pause to reflect. So when I've asked different organizations now, I was work, I've been working with the telecom in Southeast Asia yesterday, And I said, and this pause, what's meant the most to you? And they said, well, well-being, 
well-being has been critical. Family as friends has been critical. Taking time to slow down has been critical. Working from home has been wonderful. Of course, people miss the physical connection, but those four attributes become crucial. So my insight with that scenario is, how do we build in pauses beyond the five-day work, two days holiday? So these are kind of deeper pauses in how we manage our life, how we manage our future, how we manage our workload. So well-being becomes a crucial thing that you add. We will enhance your well-being. And scenario three was the great awakening. So this year leads to the pause. We don't back, go back to business as usual next year. We understand the lockdown was difficult, but there was very little pollution. We understand the lockdown was difficult, but that was a great time for meditation reflection. So you start to think about, well, what future do you want? So the Indian writer, the South Asian writer, she says, see COVID-19 as a portal. Don't see it as a political blame game. Don't see it only as a search for new vaccines and cures. See it as a portal for a different type of world. What type of world do you want? So the great health awakening, I mean, we're all pleasantly stunned by the sharing of scientific information around possible vaccines and cures. That's going at a rapid pace that I think from what I've read, historically, we've never had before. So the lesson there is, well, how do we continue having platforms that allow sharing of data, sharing of science? So the problem becomes planetary. And if you read Arnold Toynbee, he talked about every time there's a civilizational challenge, there's always a creative minority that innovates to meet that challenge. If they fail, you get a type of uh, autocratic totalitarian systems because they reinforce the past. The past doesn't work. Everyone's seen that. But the move to innovation novelty, whether it's more well-being, more trust, working from home, different ways from working, less travel, whatever that might be, that's not reinforced. We stay in imitation and thus innovation disappears. So scenario three is what's the pause that leads to awakening? So then here you're kind of awakening to a different future and finding innovative ideas to push that. So clearly the sharing part is, is, has been critical in terms of scientific sharing of information. Scenario four has been the great despair. What if the virus keeps on mutating? What if there's no vaccine? What if really those, there's no cure? What happens in this world? So what do you do if there's going to be despair for the next six, seven years? You know, what are you offering? And so you might say, well, I only want scenario two. We rest and then we work even harder next year. Well, that's not how scenarios work. We're in uncertainty. Clearly, I wish for the great awakening. I'm okay with the pause. I don't want zombie apocalypse. I don't want a great despair. But the scenarios say, well, here are four possibilities. In these possibilities, I ask organizations, what are the implications for you in this future? And that begins the process of reflecting not on one future, but broadening it to multiple futures. Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and Publisher of Marketing Mag, and Jazz Giuliani, Editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky, with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. To learn more about foresight in marketing or read articles from Sergio Brodsky, visit our website at marketingmag.com.au slash futurecast.